Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. As the political, economic, and social crisis in Venezuela deepens, I'm joined today by a scholar uniquely positioned to offer his analysis and recommendations on the situation. He is Danny Bahar, a fellow in our Global Economy and Development Program and an Israeli and Venezuelan economist. He is also an associate at Harvard's Center for International Development. Stay tuned during the interview for a new installment of Molly Reynolds' What's Happening in Congress. Also, the Brookings Podcast Network would love to get your feedback on our shows. So if you have a few minutes, please visit surveymonkey.com r slash brookingspodcasts or find the link in the show notes of this episode and take our short survey. Since this episode was recorded, over 7 million Venezuelans voted in a non-binding referendum on President Nicolas Maduro's plan to rewrite the Constitution. An overwhelming majority of them said no. Now on with the interview. Danny, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Fred. In your bio and in my introduction, it reads that you are an Israeli and Venezuelan economist. Can you explain that? Yeah, it's a unique mix. So I was born and raised in Venezuela, and I lived there until after college when I moved to Israel. I immigrated to Israel. I lived there for many years. And then I came to the U.S. to complete grad school and do my Ph.D. here, and here I am. Okay. Well, let's get on with the situation in your home country. We are recording this on July 14th. I know it's a very fluid situation. A lot is happening. But let's address it as we see it on the ground. Can you give us a quick update on the situation in Venezuela as of July 14th? Right. Well, the situation, it's full of uncertainty, and it's really changing by the minute. What's happening right now in Venezuela is a huge political crisis and humanitarian crisis that touches upon the very bad economics that is happening now. People are suffering from scarcity of goods, medicines, basic things to consume. This has generated a lot of unhappiness with the government, and and a few of other measures that the government has taken has led to these more than 100 days of protest on the streets, in which people are asking for a number of things. One of them is really to restore the democratic order in the country, to free political prisoners, and to really eventually have free and democratic elections. In a recent writing, you call the situation, in terms of the economy, a catastrophe. So what are some of the economic indicators that tell you that this is a catastrophe? Yeah, it's a catastrophe, and I think it's the worst crisis that the hemisphere has seen in decades. And it's, I think, the worst crisis that you've seen in an oil exporter country that has not been going through a war. So the country has lost about 30% of its GDP in about four years. And I think one statistic that it's very scary, but I think it it summarizes a lot, is that 75% of Venezuelans have lost up to 20 pounds. 20 pounds uh, in weight. In weight. Wow. Because there's not enough food. A lot of people are dying from preventable diseases, completely preventable diseases. There was very good reporting by the New York Times really showing the state of the public hospitals and how people are, babies are dying, infant mortality has gone up, and poverty has gone back to levels that they were 20 years ago. So how does this happen in the space of just a few years in a modern country that you know, is a democracy as well? Yeah, well, it's not a democracy anymore, right. uh, but this is a man-made crisis. The crisis really started or kicked off when the prices of oil went down. Oil is more than 95% of Venezuelan exports. The real crisis started in 2014, but what I always say in, in my writings and when I talk to people is that this crisis is not because the price of oil went down. This crisis is because two decades of really mismanagement 
of a country. Just to make the story short for our listeners, the country elected in 1999 Hugo Chavez, and he stayed in power until he died in 2013. And then Maduro, his appointed here, Nicolas Maduro. Nicolas Maduro, came into power. They really did a lot of mismanagement. They enjoyed the highest and longest oil boom in the history of the country. The price of oil was very high during the 2000s. But they did exactly the opposite of when any Economics 101 textbook will tell you. So in the good times, when a lot of money was flowing in, instead of saving, they actually increased their expenditures dramatically and they had to borrow a lot of money. So the external debt of Venezuela increased by a factor of five. Just to give you a sense, back like 10 years ago, Venezuela could have paid all of its external debt in four to five months of exports. Now it would need more than five years of exports to be able to pay its external debt. So nobody wants to lend money to Venezuela anymore. It has been basically isolated from global financial markets. And when the price of oil went down, they just had no more money flowing in because of the oil or much less money. And also they couldn't borrow any more money. So they had no other option but to cut imports. And when you cut imports, then you see the scarcity of food and, mm-hmm. and medicine and so on. The one thing that you might think or listeners might think was, well, what about the private sector in the country? Well, the private sector in the country has been going through also tough years of tough regulation, price control. So they have basically destroyed most of the productive sector in the country. So the country has been relying on imports all this time. So what is the government's reasoning for the kinds of policies that are driving the economy into a tailspin? I mean, what does the government of Nicolas Maduro have to say? Well, you know, if you ask them, they will start blaming the imperialism and that there's an economic war against Venezuela. You know, Venezuela has one of the highest inflations in the world because they have a huge fiscal deficit. The government is spending much more than what they're gathering through taxes. And to cover that, they started printing money. When that happens, inflation goes up dramatically. The highest denomination bill was a 100 Bolivares bill, which is today it's worth much less than a dollar. And at some point, the president decided that he's going to put it out of circulation because they say that some people out there in other countries are gathering all these bills as part of the economic war. I don't know why somebody in their right mind will be, you know, stockpiling bills of a currency that is over a thousand percent of hyperinflation. They keep saying all these things that the country is under an economic war and the United States and the imperialism are trying to rob them and the opposition and the oligarchy, all these, you know, speech that we've seen in many of these dictatorial countries that don't want to take real responsibility for what's happening. So let's talk about politics for a few minutes. And I'd like to ask you to start with just a brief overview of how the Venezuelan political system is supposed to work, you know, its structure of government and how often the president gets elected, those kinds of things. Right. So Maduro was elected with a very narrow margin in 2014, Back then, the popular unrest started very mildly because it wasn't very clear whether his victory was purely clean. But according to the Constitution, his term is a six-year term. Of course, what the opposition is saying today is that given the crisis, there should be another election pretty soon, an open election. So according to the Constitution, you would have to wait until 2018 for a new presidential election. But there have been other things that the Constitution says that the government hasn't really complied with. So something that happened in terms of politics is in December of 2015, there were elections for the National Assembly. Those were the last elections that happened in the country in which the opposition won with a wide margin of about two-thirds. They got about two-thirds of the seats in the National Assembly. 
But ever since the Supreme Court, which is completely controlled by the executive, there's no independence of powers, they have been constantly diminishing the power of the assembly. So everything the assembly has been trying to do, the Supreme Court has been saying is unconstitutional or illegal. There should have been two things that didn't happen that I think they could have avoided this crisis. The first thing is that there should have been in 2016 regional elections for governors and mayors in, in all the cities and states in the country. So all the governors and mayors who are now in office, their term has expired. But the government, some people claim, and I think it's right, the government avoided doing that because they knew they will lose. But the other thing that really is a fundamental part of the crisis that we're living today is that the constitution that, by the way, was put on by Chavez when he got into power. When Chavez got into power in 1999, his first thing when he became president is to really rewrite and create a new constitution, which was democratically accepted by the people. This current constitution allows to call for a recall referendum. So after a certain time into the president's term, it is legal to have a recall referendum in which people can decide whether the president should finish or should leave office in the middle of a term. The leaders in the opposition, they tried really to push that option in late 2016, but that option also was eliminated, was put off the table by the judiciary in Venezuela. So really, in terms of constitutions, there could be many ways to you know, get out of this crisis, but the government has really closed all these doors. So you've mentioned that the government of Maduro controls the judiciary. What other ways does he have to stay in power, at least for now? Well, according to the current constitution, there should be some sort of elections at some point, at least in 2018. But Maduro and his people, they know that this is the case. That's why their move right now, their response to this crisis was to say, well, we should create a new constitution. So now Maduro, one month into the protest, he said, well, I think the solution to give peace to the country is to rewrite a constitution, which is their plan right now. This is a very dangerous thing because this would really convert Maduro to a fully-fledged dictator if he's not one already. At the end of this month, there's supposed to be elections to elect the members of this constitutional assembly, which is a super powerful body that can rule over the National Assembly, can eliminate the National Assembly if they want to. They can rule over the Supreme Court. They can do pretty much whatever they want. They could change the name of the country. They really could do whatever they want. It is possible in the Constitution to call and to create a new Constitution, but this government, they skid one very small but very important step, which is to have, before electing the members of this Constitutional Assembly, is to ask the people through a referendum if they want a new constitution, and they are skipping this step because they know that they will lose it. You've talked about the opposition. I want to talk more about that in a minute. But is the opposition party or people in Venezuela saying to the government, wait a minute, you're skipping this really important step, and we need to have that vote before you can put together a new constitutional assembly? They are, but this is the very sad part of the story, and I think that this is where I hope lessons will be drawn for the future because this is like really how a small group of people have really kept power of all different institutions in the country. And they really control the executive, of course. They control the judicial system. They control the electoral power. And they control the military. So there's really not a lot of room for the position to institutionally do things that will be effective. So let's talk about the opposition. Who are the opposition leaders and what kinds of people in society are you know, aligned with the opposition forces? 
the opposition has gone through a lot of transformations, and today the opposition is working under one umbrella, which is called the Mesa de Unidad Democrática, which is the unity democratic group that really gathers all the different parties that are not government parties. So I think that there are four or five big parties and many other smaller parties, and each one of these parties have their own leaders. But they've been very good in really trying to coordinate everything. So I think that the biggest leaders nowadays in the position are one of them is Enrique Capriles Radonsky, who was the presidential candidate for this umbrella group in the last elections against Nicolás Maduro, and he narrowly lost. And there's this other person who really has created a lot of hope for many Venezuelans. His name is Leopoldo López, who was until very recently, a few days ago, a political prisoner. He's still a political prisoner, but he was released to, to house arrest. But he was really in a military jail for three years and a half. The reason he was there was because he incited some protest in 2014 and some people died. But it was clear that he's a political prisoner. It's not really a crime. To protest is not a crime. And he was released to house arrest. So probably if, if there are an elections eventually, these two people will be the ones who have the biggest chance of becoming the next president of Venezuela. And they play a big role in leading the opposition nowadays. Okay. Well, broadening our scope from Venezuela to the region and even the hemisphere, what are the dangers to the surrounding countries about this unrest in Venezuela? Well, look, Venezuela, it's not a huge economy in the continent, you know, compared to Brazil, Argentina, Mexico. It is not a small economy either, but it's not one of the biggest economies. And it also, Venezuela, it's an exporter of oil. It's its main export. And of course, that many countries in the region, they benefit from the oil that Venezuela exports. But at the end of the story, sadly, a collapse in Venezuela doesn't really have a lot of repercussion in other countries because in terms of supply chains, Venezuela is not a big part of supply chains or... Because otherwise, maybe the story would be different. But on the political side, I think that this is an important moment because it really sets a precedent on whether the institutions that the Latin American people have set from themselves to really avoid these situations from happening are really working. And I think that you see a lot of efforts of really living up to that in the organization of American states, who is led by Luis Almagro, who's an Uruguayan. He's the secretary general of the Organization of American States, the OAS. And he has really become a leader on trying to gather enough votes and consensus from the countries in the hemisphere, including the United States, Canada, and all the Latin American countries and the Caribbean islands, to really condemn what's happening in Venezuela and to pressure from outside. And I think that this is the big challenge, whether we have the institutions in the hemisphere to really avoid this happening again and again. And so far, the answer is like, we don't really know, because in spite of the fact that Almagro has played a big role and tried to push, and, and in spite of the fact that many countries... Most of the big countries in the continent have really condemned Venezuela. They haven't been able to be very effective because a few small Caribbean countries that, you know, in the OAS, you have one country, one vote. So very few small Caribbean countries that benefited for many years from Venezuelan oil, they haven't been as strong against the government as they should. So it's yet to be seen. So what role should other organizations in governments beyond the OAS, such as the International Monetary Fund, or in the United States government, play in responding to the crisis there? There are things that can be done, and I think that some of them have been done already. The current administration of President Trump, I'm not a big fan in general about President Trump, but in terms of these, I think there have been a few steps that I think are positive. They, for instance, have sanctioned the justices in the Supreme Court in Venezuela. So I think that, that keeping this system in which you're really giving the carrot and stick to the right people, it could be a game changer. So I think that really 
creating the incentives for people that are keeping the country hostage to really change sides and to bring back the country to constitutional order, which goes by promising somehow some sort of amnesty that if the country changes, they won't be punished if the crimes that they committed were not as bad. Of course, that there are many crimes and a lot of corruption happening in Venezuela. In, I'm talking also about the military, for instance. Military, Supreme Court, people who are with the government, if some of them are involved in drug dealing and stuff like that, you know, that's something that you cannot forgive. But I think that there should be a path for people that decide to really bring democracy back to help them. So I think that the U.S. can play a big role in doing this stick and carrot system. And I think that they're being thoughtful about it. And I think that that, that should continue. And I think all the countries in the hemisphere should join that. And how important is it for Venezuela that it get help for its external debt problem? That is crucial. That is crucial. And I think that that will happen. It's probably not going to happen with this government. This government is not only unwilling to even accept that the economy is, is going bad, they're not willing to allow humanitarian aid to come in, which is something else that the international community could do. And I think that they're willing to do, but the government hasn't allowed them to, to create a humanitarian channel to bring in food and medicines. So I think that it is going to be a very important conversation that is happening already in the circles of the opposition, both in Venezuela and Venezuelans in the diaspora, trying to think how this reconstruction is going to look. And I think that when there's a new government, there's going to be the need to rely a lot on the international community in terms of finances. Probably Venezuela is going to need a bailout from the IMF or other multilateral organizations, and it's going to need to restructure the debt. Final question then on the economy, and you mentioned this earlier, it's so dependent on oil exports. And I read with a lot of surprise that Venezuela sits on top of one of the largest oil deposits anywhere. What steps could Venezuela do to wean itself from this dependence on oil? Well, that's a great question. That's actually a lot of the research I do on my day today about how countries diversify and, and the risk of that. And I think that it's, um, it's a big challenge. And I think that we've seen in part of the research I've done that countries that are rich in natural resources, for them, it's even harder to really diversify into other industries. We should save a lot of this for another podcast if the listeners are interested. But I think it goes a lot by doing right public policy and try to find what are the industries that make more sense in which Venezuela has some Latin comparative advantage, saying that Venezuela could be competitive in those industries. And some of it could be about really putting together a correct structure of incentives to bring foreign investment and perhaps the government to play a role in some public-private partnerships and so on. So it is a difficult question, but it's a very, very important task that the next government will have to look at. Well, Danny, we will certainly be following you to try to understand what's happening in Venezuela in the weeks and months to come. And I appreciate you sharing your time and expertise today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You can learn more about Danny Bahar and his research on our website, including a recent piece on our Order from Chaos blog at brookings.edu. And now, here's a new installment of What's Happening in Congress on the failure so far of the Senate's Affordable Care Act replacement bill and what could happen next. My name is Molly Reynolds, and I'm a fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. With a late-night press release, 
Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell halted congressional Republicans' efforts to pass a bill repealing and replacing parts of the Affordable Care Act yet again. Despite several months of efforts to thread the needle between the demands of conservative and pragmatic members of his caucus, McConnell lacked sufficient support from Senate Republicans to even start a legislative debate that would eventually culminate in a vote on his proposal. Why has it been so hard for Senate Republicans to get to yes on a health care bill? On one hand, many elite Republicans clearly share a rhetorical goal, repealing Obamacare. They've campaigned on the issue since the Affordable Care Act was enacted in 2010, repeatedly promising their base voters that if they controlled the House, Senate, and presidency, they would accomplish this long-held goal. When it came time to write a piece of legislation that actually embodied that promise, it proved to be exceedingly difficult. Some individual House members, and especially senators, found themselves cross-pressured. What was best for their party, being able to finally point to something, anything, that repealed Obamacare, pointed them in one direction. But what was best for them individually, in some cases, steered them differently. This was true on both sides of the ideological spectrum, for legislators who thought these years' efforts didn't go far enough, and for those who thought they went too far. The challenges of this cross-pressuring were especially acute in the Senate, where McConnell's small majority of only 52 seats left him with very little room for error. He could only lose two of his co-partisans, and once Rand Paul and Susan Collins announced early that they would not vote to start debate, he had no additional votes to spare. In the end, the two senators whose opposition doomed the effort came from the conservative end of the caucus, illustrating that the challenges of a narrow majority aren't just about losing the support of relatively more moderate members. Because congressional Republicans embraced a procedural strategy known as budget reconciliation that prevented the possibility of a filibuster, the small size of McConnell's majority didn't need to lead to the bill's failure. But reconciliation came with its drawbacks. The process's rules meant that there were limitations on what could be in the bill, which potentially restricted exactly how McConnell tried to thread his tricky legislative needle. With no Democratic votes required for passage in the Senate, Republicans lost one possible source of unity, the ability to blame their partisan opponents for their lack of cooperation. So what happens next? McConnell reportedly plans to hold a vote to bring up the House bill for debate in the Senate with a promise that the first amendment that the Senate would consider to the measure would be one replacing the House's proposal with the bill that the Senate passed in 2015 to partially repeal but not replace the Affordable Care Act. Of the currently serving Republican senators, only Susan Collins of Maine voted against that bill, but its prospects for success at this point are much shakier. The 2015 bill was what political scientists call veto bait, a bill that legislators know the president will veto but want to pass anyway in order to send a message about where the two parties stand. In addition, getting to the point where the Senate would vote on that 2015 bill again would require 50 senators to support bringing up the House bill. At least Collins, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia have all said they oppose such a move with their opposition potentially due in part to the uncertainty about how exactly things would proceed on the floor, even in the face of McConnell's promise. We've seen the health care bill declared dead before this year, only to have it be resurrected. While this week's events may finally shut the lid on its coffin, the underlying issue, Obamacare, its winners and losers, and what to do about it going forward, isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Uncertainty about certain payments to insurers under the law remains, and the issue could play a role in the next year's midterm elections. 
but with a number of other important issues with actual deadlines, like appropriations bills and the debt ceiling on the congressional agenda, Congress may finally move on, at least for now. That's what's happening in Congress. Molly Reynolds is the author of a new book from the Brookings Institution Press titled Exceptions to the Rule, The Politics of Filibuster Limitations in the U.S. Senate. Hey, listeners, want to ask an expert a question? You can by sending an email to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air, and I'll get an expert to answer and include it in an upcoming episode. Thanks to all of you who have sent in questions already. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Reberedo, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Vanessa Sauter is the producer. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Our interns are Sam Dart, China Holmes, and Brian Harrington. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And thanks to David Nassar for his support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.